This episode is brought to you by KX Pilates Cottesloe. From beginner to advanced, their modern studio has classes to suit you and your goals. It's Left of Field with Danny Kavanagh. Hello, Left of Field listeners. Danny Kavanagh here, and this week's episode is a cracker. Today, I'm going to be chatting to Phil Anderson. Now, Phil was a trailblazer in the Australian cycling world. He was the first non-European to wear the yellow jersey in the Tour de France. He's won some of the biggest European championships and other classics around the world. He's a couple of Commonwealth Games gold medals and so much more. He's got so many great, incredible stories about the sport, a time of Coca-Colas, no helmets, and a lot of risk on the bike. Fluoro is even worn, he says. Hope you enjoy it. Outstanding man, and thanks for listening. Phil Anderson, welcome to the Left of Field podcast. How are you going today? Very good, thank you. I'm excited about uh, having a chat. Why don't you start us off today with telling everyone a bit about yourself? At the age of 16, I saw a bike race in suburban Melbourne, which you know stimulated my emotions. And I'd never seen a, a bike race before. And, and I questioned somebody on the side of the road, one of the supporting officials, and they told me a little bit about what was going on. And he explained a little bit about bike racing in Australia and said if I'd like to have more information to go down to the local bike shop. So that was when I was 16, back in the 70s. And that was, I guess, the start of, of what became my life. Do you remember uh, your first bike that you received? My sister and I, and I was possibly five, four or five years old, and we got a three-wheeler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we, shared, we had to share it. So that was the first bike. It was possibly like a Cyclops or, a, I don't know, a Melbourne Star or some sort of Australian brand and my second bike I didn't get until I was like 12. I joined that local uh, bike club here in Melbourne when I was 16 and you know to put together a a, uh, racing bike and you know before too long I was racing but uh, yeah do you remember that first race you had? Sort of in the outer suburbs of Melbourne maybe a 60 kilometer race and it was a handicap okay so you know, I thought this would be a great opportunity to learn learn in my first bike race a little bit about bike racing but they sent me off alone <laughs> because I was a newbie or you know I hadn't raced before and the less stronger the younger or older riders head off first and of course I was there by myself and then you know it's kind of staggered they might have had 10 different groups of riders totaling maybe, I don't know, 50 riders in the end, you know, and the fastest start last, you know, maybe half an hour behind me. So I didn't learn much at all because 10 kilometres before the finish, I, I heard this whirring sound and it was getting louder and louder. And I sort of glanced over my shoulder as the entire field just came racing past me. They picked everybody up, but they didn't slow down for me. They just went straight past. So by the time I got to the finish, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, I, I don't think they even saw me go across the line. They just started packing up. And in fact, my first, my first year was possibly pretty uneventful. I mean, it was very much just a hobby and, you know, just a sort of a, a pastime. So I improved a lot from that uh, first race. And, you know, after a couple of years, I started going to bigger races and surrounding myself with a lot better riders than myself, and which, which, who actually helped me. And, you know, I eventually got on the Victorian team and that qualified me to go to the Australian titles and reasonably well as a junior, like under 18. 
uh, got second in the Australian Championships. You know, the progression was kind of steady. It wasn't. You read about sports heroes, how they pick up the ball. You know, if it's football, and from day one, you can see that this person is going to be a champion. <laughs> but people would look at me and think, "What a waste of time this kid is!" You know, there wasn't there wasn't much talent showing uh, early on, but got into the Australian team. I went to the Commonwealth Games, my fourth year. Gold at the Commonwealth Games, and I still hadn't travelled much around the world. I didn't really sort of see the global sort of size of the sport. And so, you know, as an Australian, when you represent the country as, as a Commonwealth Games athlete, the next, you know, the next step is, is to try and get in the Olympic team. So the Olympics were going to be two years later in, in uh, 1980. So that was my goal, you know, come back to Australia, my gold medal was Commonwealth Games. But when I came back to Australia, I'd had an offer riding as an amateur in France uh, in this club in, in Paris. And so for me, I thought, well, that's a perfect opportunity to get some experience. You know, this could lead to, you know, improved performance for the uh, for the Olympics. So I went over there and I did really well as an amateur, just uh, living in Paris and racing all over France on this club and did so well, in fact, by the end of that year, okay, this 70, the year was uh, 1979, they said, listen, would you like to turn pro? We've got, you know, a couple of teams came to me and, and offered me a contract to uh, turn professional. And I thought, well, because back then, if you signed a... a uh, to race professional, then you couldn't represent the country on the Olympic level. Yeah, it was very segregated back then. You gave up your Aussie dream to chase <laughs> European championships. That's right. That's right. You know, I didn't know if I'd ever have that opportunity again. And when I was over there, you know, that first year as an amateur, I looked around and I saw how, how big the sport was. And, you know, that there actually was a, a professional division of the sport where, you know, you could actually make a career out of it. You know, that was something which wasn't possible in Australia. I'd never seen that before. And so, yeah, it was a risk, I guess. But, um, you know, also when you when you race at that level, the possibility of actually winning a gold medal in the Olympics is a lot different than winning a Commonwealth game. Cycling, you know, Australia was very strong uh, within the uh, Commonwealth. But at, at the Olympic level, when you're racing against, you know, the Russians, the Germans, the, you know, all the Europeans, the odds are, are, are a lot less at, at winning a gold medal. So... Signed a contract with the uh, French Peugeot team, who I was with for those first four years. And so you go your first tour to France in 1981. So how was the tour? Was it what you expected? Uh, well, it was pretty daunting. I didn't really know what to expect. You know, my teammates, you know, my Peugeot teammates, all French, you know, my team, was, we had like 20 riders, 22 riders on the team. You know, leading into the tour, I was going very well. I'd won a heap of race. You know, they said, yeah, Phil, you're on the team. I was... I was beside myself, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. Bloody hard and, you know, we did mountains which I'd never really seen before. 3,000, 4,000 kilometres. <laughs> Anything over 1,000 kilometres doesn't matter, it could be 10,000. It all seems, you know, impossible. <laughs> we had a team leader, his name was uh, Jean-René Bernardo. Our job was to look after Jean-René and, uh, you know, in, in, in bike racing that's, you know, just make sure they're not riding in the wind. You know, you shelter them out of the uh, the elements and, you know, if they need a water bottle, you go back to the car and get a water bottle for them or, you know, if they need to have a piss, you push them along while they're going, going, going along. You know, just sort of, and they call that job a domestic. So my job, my first tour of France was there as a, on a domestic level or domestic. So, But you, know, you didn't follow your job then to, to exactly a T because how did you end up 
with the front of the pack then because you became uh, the first yeah. ever non-European to wear the yellow jersey. How did you get to leading a stage of the Tour de France? Yes, well, on, on about uh, day four of that first tour, we had a team time trial stage and the Peugeot team I was in, we did very well. We got a second. What happens early on in the race to the results, you know, they give you the results every day and, uh, you know, everybody's times added up from, you know, day one. So a lot of the days everybody finishes together in those big packs that you see, sometimes there's crashes. But then when it's in the mountains and in time trials, you know, the times start to um, to vary and differ up. So day five, we started you know, after this time trial and the Peugeot team, we were all like number number nine right through to 16 or something. So we're coming into the, into the mountains. Day five was... A, was a mountainous day down in the Pyrenees. I think it started down in Carcassonne. I'd never really ridden the mountains before, so I'd, once again, I didn't really know what to expect. So uh, we head off. There's maybe a 180-kilometre stage, so quite long. And we have about four mountains to go over. It actually finished on the top of the fourth mountain, just like a ski resort. I'd never been to a ski resort before, so this was all new on many levels. So we take off, and after about 60, 70 kilometres, the pace is getting higher and higher, and I knew that we are coming into a mountain pretty soon there was a, a, going to be a mountain top that we're going to go over the top of at 75 kilometers so I knew there was a, a mountain coming up and I was looking up you know I was sort of sitting up on my bike looking over the top of all these riders as I was getting faster we must have been doing 60 kilometers an hour you know I yelled across to my teammate you know where's this bloody mountain I was you know looking over the top I couldn't see any mountains you know it's kind of a not a misty day but it's sort of a hazy day and he said no no I feel I feel you don't look yeah, you've got to look up in the sky, and I looked mm-hmm. up above all the races, like up <laughs> up in the clouds, basically, and then you could see these peaks. You know, I'd never seen mountains like that before in my life. Certainly <laughs> certainly nothing like that down here in Victoria. You know, so I just put my head down and, and went like a banshee like everybody else because there was a corner coming up. We went from a, like a four-lane road down to a, a one-lane sort of goat track which went up one of these massive mountains. And, you know, we, so we, we start climbing and, and I just notice that riders are leaving gaps. You know, they're like, you know, getting dropped off the, the, the front of the pack. So I was sort of dodging all these riders and sort of slowly but surely make, making my way through the pack. And we got to the top of this first huge mountain and uh, the pack, the size of the pack was cut in half. Like we went from 200 riders down to 100 riders. I thought, oh, this is unbelievable. So we went down... Down, racing down this uh, descent, something I'd never experienced before. It was very exciting, crazy speeds. And you could see the front of the pack, you know, a couple of hairpins below you, you know, and you're actually still in the, still in the, like two or 300 metres behind and everybody's just going crazy, crazy speeds. So we get to the bottom of the mountain and we go up another mountain directly straight up, 1,500 metres, 2,000 metres. I can't remember the name of the, the particular climb. It was maybe called Aspal. You know, these are all sort of legendary climbs and... In the Pyrenees, well, I didn't know one climb from the other now. I, I tend to know them now after doing it a few times. But, but the sec- top of the second climb, well, again, same thing happened. You know, riders letting gaps go. You're you just know, taking advantage of it and working your way up to the top part. Yeah, well, bunches getting smaller and smaller. An ultimate climb, another major climb. Suddenly I hear my uh, director coming up. This is before, like, all the riders now have radios and... You know, it's completely different now. Back then, the, the director would drive up beside you, honking his horn, and he came up beside me. He goes, feel, feel, uh, Jean-René. he got to look after Jean-René. And I go, oh, yeah, where is Jean-René? And I look around, 
And you know, by this time, there's only like 20 or 30 guys left. And it's quite clearly our jersey, the Peugeot jersey, is uh, an iconic, easy-to-see jersey. And, of course, you know, I just got caught up in the excitement of everything and just being surrounded by my heroes and just trying to, you know, keep up with the with a pack that I totally forgot about, you know, Jean René, our humble leader. <laughs> so I said, I said, oh, You're Marisa. now the leading man. Yeah, well, I said, Maurice, let's, I'll drop back. Where's, uh, how far back is he? He said, no, 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 I feel, he's, you know, you stay there, stay there. But, uh, you know, you're meant to be with him today. You're meant to be looking after him. He's two groups back. Don't wait. You know, you're going well, but, you know, you come and see me tonight. He was pretty upset. I said, oh, jeez, didn't sound very good. So we go over the top of this penultimate climb, whistling down the last down the last ascent, and then we've got the finish going up to the ski slope, you know, really super steep climb for about 15 kilometres. There's only like half a dozen guys left. And I know all these guys, not personally, but I've got posters of these guys on my wall back in Melbourne, like superheroes of mine. And here I am, you know, this kid from, <laughs> from the Hawthorne Club is uh, riding amongst these guys. They didn't know who the hell I was. <laughs> And, you know, they were sort of attacking me and I was sort of struggling up to them. And in the end, one rider gets away. And if he'd won the tour a few years before, that left Bernard Hino and I. And Hino had won the tour the year before, the year before that as well. And I just sort of struggled and stayed with him. And, you know, he beat me for second. I got third. But because the day before our team beat his team in that team time trial, you know, they put me in the yellow jersey. So that was that sort of bit stage and that first tour to France. Crazy, the guy from from Melbourne winning the yellow jersey. It's it's pretty insane and it sounds like an ultimate dream. KX Pilates in Cottesloe has officially opened and if you're a big Pilates fan like me, this would be music to your ears. Now, KX Pilates has been around for a while and the team at Cottesloe is ready to help you experience a revolutionary, fast-paced, high-intensity body-toning workout in just 50 minutes. Their motto, work out smarter, not longer. Now, I've tried the classes here. They have some really great teachers who really give you quite the workout and you were left a big sweating mess. They have brand new beds there that I actually haven't seen in any other studio and they're really cool. So if you want to give KX a go, why not use the code LEFTERFIELD and become part of the KX family? I promise you, you won't regret it. It is an amazing workout for all levels, whether you have never tried Pilates before or you are a bit of a Pilates freak. I hope to see you in some classes soon. I did want to ask you a few questions about this time of yours when you're riding, you know, in the 70s, in the 80s, dominating the sport. You have you ended up doing 13 Tour de France's and you win again another stage 10 years later. It's all pretty crazy. Along with being, uh, it was a very fashionable time at that stage and you were kind of dubbed a bit of a star icon, I hear, of the, ra- of the racing scene. Why, why you were so popular with your fashion? Well... <laughs> Well, I didn't consider myself a uh, fashionista by any means. You know, some parts of my career I had really short hair. Other times I had really long hair, like halfway down my back sort of thing. Fluoro clothing, it's, it's big with the Italians. And I was i was never on an Italian team, but our, there was one team, I was the TBM team, and they had Italian sponsors. And they are very flamboyant in, in their choice of colours with logos. And, you know, so you sort of run with the their colour palette, and yeah, so sometimes those things, well, some people would say, oh my God, what's that guy wearing? <laughs> it all clashes, and I think it's only now, 25, 30 years later, that people say, 
you know, that was cutting edge then, you know. But I think they just thought, he must have balls if he's wearing that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and did you carry around a Coca-Cola when you were racing? In, in, in the Tour de France, actually in that very first tour when I was telling you I was going up that, uh, you know, the last mountain and trying to keep up with, uh, you know, uh, on the penultimate climb, there's like four or five of us across the road. I'm t- sort of up there trying to trying to slow him down or trying to, you know, like it's no point attacking guys, I'm still here. And I noticed when I was near the front that riders will get a drink from beside, you know, one of the spectators. You see all those crazy people lining the roads and there'll be people handing up drinks, just sort of a bottle of water and I'd give it to the rider on the left, on the uh, left-hand side of the road, and then the rider would take a swig of it and, and give it to the rider next to him, and, and it would slowly make its way through the bunch, you see, like a big bottle of water or something. Yeah. And so I was on the right-hand side of the road, and I saw somebody with a can of Coke. You know, I reached out, and it was all frosty and really cold, and I uh, cracked the top of it, and I was about to take a swig of it, and I looked over to my uh, left, and it was my hero, Bernardino, beside me, who I was going to do battle with, you know, on the next climb. And I thought, gee, he looks like he needs the coke more than me, you know. As a gesture, I'll give him a, <laughs> I'll give him first swing. And he he looked over at me. Possibly didn't know who I was. Possibly <laughs> thought I was some dickhead from the crowd who just jumped on a bike or something. He looked over at me and saw that bloody coke, and he just knocked that coke out of my hand. <laughs> what? Didn't so, even let you drink I was, it. I was so. You've been riding for days. Yeah, that's right. And so. The second part of the story, a few years ago, I was doing an interview with a journalist, Rupert Guinness. He was asking me about this particular crash that I had in saint in central France. You know, this is like five or six years later. I had this crash. Myself and Hino fell We fell together in the last metres coming into the finish in saint And we're both sort of lying on the road. And I'm describing this to uh, my, my journalist friend, Rupert. And uh, I'm sort of lying on the, on the road, and I look over, and there's Bernardino on the other side of the road, and we've caught each other's eye, eyes. And my friend Rupert, the journalist, is, is riveted with this story, and he said, Phil, what, what happened yet? What happened then? He said, did he ask you for a Coke? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, yeah it, was a funny, it was a funny story, but... <laughs> Yeah, you didn't always have a Coke then. All right. So oh, it was true though. And well, so here's another one that uh, you like to give teammates advice on how to deal with diarrhea. Is there oh. a story to that? <laughs> yeah. You know, right. People always ask, you know, what happens when you need to go to the toilet because you've got these races which go for hours and hours, you know, when you can't exactly just, you know, stop and go to a cafe or something. So how do you go to the toilet? And having a piss is no problem. You just have a leak, just hang it out. Or, you know, when you're going along, you know, trying to find a spot where there aren't hundreds of people whining there uh, is, is the biggest challenge uh, for that sort of situation. But but anyway, this one particular day, a younger teammate came up to me and said, Phil, Phil, you know I've got a really bad stomach. I really need to go to the toilet. And I said, well, just have a... Stop and have a slash, you know, let's have a pee or whatever. He said, no, no, I've got to go number two. And I said, oh, jeez, you are crook then, aren't you? And I said, oh, you know, the pace is too high. I can't really, we can't really stop, you know, because that's always an option. Can you hang on? He said, no, jeez. I said, well, the only alternative is something which I've never tried myself. I've heard it. It was sort of a mythical story I heard once about one of my, an older guy on the team told me the story that, that he heard about, so it wasn't even his story. Something to do with take your hat, like not a helmet, but we used to have these like, cotton hats, they call caskets, or sort of a racing cap. Yeah, because you didn't wear helmets, which is bizarre, but you, you <laughs> yeah. I mean, you yeah. wore a helmet, actually, you were a pioneer in that, but... Yeah, yeah, but most of the, most of the riders didn't, but yeah. everybody always carried one of these little hats in their pocket, 
you know, to use, you know, if it's a sunny day or, I mean, it's ridiculous. It doesn't really offer you any kind of safety protection, but it will keep the sun off. Anyway, I said, you take that hat and it's something to do with you, put it down in shorts and you do the job and get rid of it. He says, are you kidding, aren't you? And I said, no. He said, I've got a cap. You can use mine if you want. So I gave him my cap and, and I look over at him and he's and uh, he's kind of looking at me as he's putting his buddy, his hat down the front, you know, down the front of his shorts head like this and I said yeah yeah just put it down there and uh, make sure you got it in position before you let go and he said yeah you just let go I said yeah yeah so I was looking over at him and he was kind of he had kind of that sour lemon sort of look on his face he was trying to relax a bit <laughs> and suddenly you know you could see the, the bunch the shape of the bunch just kind of spread out because they could see something awful was going on and then, <laughs> and then you know you could just sort of see that tension on his face relaxes as there was, you know, satisfaction coming through as he was getting re- relieved of that pain and discomfort. And then he just sort of like pulled it. I said, yeah, make sure when you when you pull that bloody head out, you follow through and clean up a bit <laughs> on the way out. So he pulls out this bloody, uh, this steamer <laughs> and everybody's looking at him nearly vomiting. You know, he's got this bloody pile of, of dung in, in his hat. And he said, now what? And I said, just... Toss it. So I looked over my shoulders. This buddy hat was like pirouetting, pirouetting across the sort of heads of the the riders and over towards the crowd. And I sort of looked over, and you could see like you know twenty people going to grab that bloody hat that was going through the air. And I thought this isn't going to end well. But anyway, it was a it was a very funny situation. So you're not really, yeah, maybe not the best advice. I mean, at least he was No, no, certainly not medical. Not Not a medical advice. No, 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 no. It was just a uh, tip getting getting out of a tight spot, I guess. (laughs) Well, just to finish up, I do want to touch on, obviously, you got to ride with Lance Armstrong, you know, a lot in his career. You were there when he started in the 90s, came to your team, and you actually got to ride with him quite a bit. How did you feel when everything came out about him, and how much doping did you see? in your time in the sport? Oh, look, I always considered the riders around me, I, I always considered nobody was cheating. You know, I always, so you never saw anything? I, I never saw anything. I always, but there, you know, occasionally a rider was, was pinged, come out positive, certainly not EPO, but not in my years, but, you know, there would be a rider would come out positive and I thought, uh, I wouldn't have thought that, you know, but, you know, so I'm probably not the best judge, but I certainly didn't see anything firsthand. But with Lance, I didn't, suspect him right up until the end and I was always everybody always said Phil you've got to be kidding it's bloody obvious look the guy's a bloody cancer survivor how can you win the Tour de France and I was always a believer that in the miracle that he wasn't a doper or wasn't cheating at all and at the end of the day I just had to eat my hat pretty very disappointed what happened in the end and what happened to the sport and you know there's still repercussions I guess or ripples that the sport I guess is still recovering I mean it's, it's a lot better now than what it was then but yeah, the years I knew Lance, he certainly wasn't didn't show any signs. I mean, we were often roomies and hanging out, and there was certainly he was you know he was hungry for wins and 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 things like that. But this was like pre-cancer. I think when he came back '98, I think it was, I'd already retired by then. But they said he came out totally different person, and he was so driven and just made a lot of enemies. It had nothing to do with with uh, doping. It was just arrogance and the way that he uh, treated people. Yeah, yeah, very, very disappointing. Certainly a different Lance and, and um, you know, the guy, the little kid that came out of triathlon and, and joined the uh, Motorola team, I think it would have been 93, I think it was, yeah. Wow. You could see he had talent. 
you can see he had talent and you know the drive reminded me I guess of the of the young you know Phil Anderson back in the Hawthorne days coming over to Europe and just so excited to to, to be peloton and and racing and every day was was an adventure sort of thing and you could see he was hungry to win and in fact I think it was in '93 he won the the world championship so he's a very good rider but yeah totally different than um, when he came back after after cancer. Well, thank you so much for giving up your time to chat to us today. I know that you're still a keen rider, you know, love getting out there on your bike every day. And it, it's great to hear a story of Australian who pioneered the sport and yeah, Tui's ads about you and you were a bit of a star back in the back in your time. So uh, thank you so much for chatting to me today. Do you mind leaving our listeners then with, you know, you being such a driven and hard working athlete for so many years and it's obviously still you're still that person and though you don't lose that kind of mantra and dedication to life what words help you inspire you every day i think just follow your dreams just don't be discouraged by things which happen which come in your path and the way you know set yourself a goal and, and you know take the steps to reach them from time to time, there'll be times when you have to, you know, step a little bit sideways, but keep moving forward and keep the goal in mind. Thank you so much, Phil. I'll let you get back out there on your bike. Thanks for having a chat to us today. No problems at all, Danielle. Great speaking to you. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Phil. He had some cracking stories. I wish we could hear more. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Left of Field podcast. Like always, like and subscribe and tell your mates so we can make this podcast as big as possible. All right, I'll catch you next week.